Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm an assistant professor at California State University, Northridge, and a speech pathologist at UCLA Medical Center. In this episode of the ANCDS podcast, I talked to Dr. McKay Solberg. Dr. Solberg is a full professor and director of the Communication Disorders and Sciences program at the University of Oregon and a fellow of the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. Dr. Solberg has published numerous articles, chapters, and manuals on managing cognitive impairments following acquired brain injury and is co-author of two leading textbooks in the field. She's been funded on a number of federal projects supporting the development and evaluation of assistive technology to deliver cognitive rehabilitation and to help individuals with cognitive impairments more fully integrate into their communities. I've been interested in and have been reading Dr. Solberg's work for a number of years and I commented to her to start off our conversation that one of the things I appreciated about her work and her writing was that I always got a sense that she was writing from a clinician's perspective as well as a researcher's perspective and that it's been interesting to watch her interests and her approach to rehabilitation develop over time. Well, thank you. I consider that a compliment. Um, I suppose sometimes I feel a little bit uh, a pseudo researcher because I am very interested in in clinical questions um, in a very pragmatic way, like what can we do within the context in which we operate that make a difference to people in their day-to-day lives when they're no longer seeing us. Um, but I think research, it really, you know, depends on the kinds of questions that you ask. So, you know, a cognitive psychology, we, we base a lot of our models and things on, you know, what we know about cognitive psychology that might have been conducted in a experimental lab or, you know, what we learn about brain networks from more, you know, from brain imaging studies. But um, because my questions have been more, how can we help people who have these issues? I think I've looked to other researchers that are maybe in more uh, experimental, formal laboratory kinds of contexts to help give us theory and ground what we do and then see if it works for real people and real therapists and real environments. Yeah, yeah. Well, you kind of, I think, started off publishing about attention, and and, yes. and you presented a, a model of attention that was, at the time, I think, different because it was really informed by clinical observations. Is, is that correct? Is that- Yes, I think um, the model of attention and thinking about attention as this multidimensional construct, which now is a mainstream way to think of it, but wasn't at the time, was based in part on kind of factor analytic models that where they give people lots of attention tests. And then they say, oh, look, these kinds of tasks fall together. So that must be different kinds of attention. And then observing what people complained about and what we saw and then kind of superimposing, you know, and and also some of the cognitive psychology studies looking at uh, typical attention and how it works and 
again, comparing that to the kinds of things we saw in our patients, and then constructing that model, and then looking to see if there were people that had different particular profiles of specific types or domains of attention that might that we might want to um, work on that particular domain. Yeah, and it seems like your your model of attention and how you approach treating it has changed over time from uh, attention process training one up to <laughs> particularly the latest version. Can you talk a little bit about how, kind of how that happened? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, early on when we were doing attention training, it was in looking at some of those early studies, um, we were looking at the question, can can people get better? You know, that was an era when after physicians would say, you know, after a year, there is no going to be no more improvement. So it's a really different context. So we're like, heck, look, we're doing these drills and people get better there. We can retest their attention and, and they're better in the areas that we worked on. Um, and that was really exciting at the time. And I think was an important contribution. Then the questions came, well, so they're better on these tests, but are they better on uh, complex everyday tasks that, you know, is the attention improvement, does it generalize? Is there sufficient FAR transfer? And I think there's been a mix of studies suggesting that transfer may be limited. And so there's, you know, some studies showing that you can change kind of brain activation networks with all this kinds of specific drills. But we began to, to realize, gosh, who cares if they get better on these tests or their brain networks change? What really matters is can they drive more fluent, you know, with ease? Can hold a conversation? Are they less frustrated? So I think some of the evolution that occurred was to figure out how to um, promote generalization and transfer. And I think the, the particular areas that evolved were to link the attention training to strategy training so that you're working with people uh, kind of manipulating their own cognition. For example, if somebody's working primarily on working memory and holding on to information, they may have drills that do that, but then they'll additionally identify strategies that they can link with that. So for example, maybe self-talk or visualization or some type of pacing strategy, something that works for them. So the exercises are done in conjunction with that, in addition to identifying functional goals. So if this attention were to get better, how would you know? So then there's, you can set up generalization activities. So I think the big changes over time have been to link the exercises to cognitive strategies that make sense for that person and that they're involved in selecting and to have it linked to meaningful outcomes that uh, require that types of, that type of attention. I think it's important to be cautious. Um, this kind of direct attention training is, is one um, tool in our, our cognitive rehabilitation uh, offerings. And I think we don't know a ton about candidacy and who benefits the best. So there's been a whole industry 
factory and a, a big business that's been built up around brain training with a lot um, with a lot of the commercially available programs. So I think it warrants caution. Um, I think just having people do computer drills without uh, a clear reason why that particular patient would be a candidate um, is important to think about. So the um, when I think about the ideal candidate and I look across the literature, I think our best uh, guesses or hypotheses for who benefits are a person who has a predominant attention deficit where their responses on clinical interview questions and questionnaires uh, matches their the findings on neuropsych attention tests so that it's a consistent profile of an attention problem where there's not a heavy psychological overlay and where uh, you're if you and where they're clear on if their attention were to improve, they have some kind of functional uh, activities or some sort of uh, tasks that would make a difference for them. So I guess if I were to summarize, I would say that I think it's important at this point with what we know about attention training to one, really look at candidacy issues, two, to be very clear on what are kind of patient-centered functional outcomes that would make a difference, to make sure that the task selection and implementation of the attention training makes sense for that patient. So for example, are they really working on working memory? Are they working more on distractibility and suppression um, so that the task selection and how we implement it is well thought out, theoretically grounded, and matches the person's profile? And again, as I said, pairing the, the drills with strategy training. And and again, being able to measure generalization to meaningful activities. So I do think it has a place. Um, I think it's, uh, but it's important to be able to measure uh, progress and generalization and not continue if we're not seeing improvements. You know, I'm not that familiar with the brain training games. I mean, I, I know the names, I know they're out there. I think it's been a while I might've check them out very briefly but do you think there's for the slp who might be using them maybe simply because you know it makes doing therapy easier in some practical way mm -hmm. do you see a use for them um can you use them skillfully i guess that's the kind of question i'm asking i think There'll be, there'd be people who would be on both sides of the fence. So the issue is kind of, is decontextualized therapy, is there a place for decontextualized therapy in our practice? And there's a number of people in our field who would say absolutely not, that everything should be contextualized. If, it's, if you're doing some kind of drill that's divorced from anything functional, um, that it doesn't have a place. And then you're gonna have people who look at some of the kind of data showing, um, oh, we get these kinds of improvements and there's some, tr some trans evidence of transfer, even if it's not far transfer, it's efficient. So I think there's been this kind of pitting against the two against each other. Um, I would say I'm somewhere in the middle, again, with, with caveats that I would not set somebody to do a systematic computer-based program where I'm just 
are doing a series of exercises that I didn't select based on my own testing and observations and um, having an individualized adaptive exercises would be something I would say would be a skillful use of them. So um, not just using something that was pre-prescribed. So, you know, as they get better then on these exercises, what, what would be the next step? Are you training a specific domain or are you just following a menu that's in a computer? And again, linking it to functional tasks that have that type of attention as their basis and pairing it with strategy so they're learning to engage their their own you know there's a metacognitive piece to it as well do you think we've got we're getting close to reaching the limits of direct attention training in terms of understanding how much in improvement how much meaningful useful improvement we can get through that path now that's that's an interesting question um I think there's way more questions than we have answers. And so I think we would have to, there's a lot more research to be done. So I think places where there's a large N and you can really sort through the numbers. So for example, a big issue is dosage. What's the, what kind of treatment dosage really results in kinds of changes and how, and that's something that you have to look at very, you need big enough numbers. Um, you need to compare different dosage amounts. What types of activities? I guess to me, the question is it's hard to separate out all the implementation variables and the candidacy variables. So we think um, that people have to have enough neural reserve, for example, to benefit from attention training, um, kind of following the NIH blueprint on neuroplasticity. That would be kind of a fundamental principle. So how much neural reserve? So we, so for example, we don't tend to do it with people that are very severely impaired. We don't do it with people that are very mildly impaired and have a lot more kind of uh, self-efficacy, anxiety, uh, psycho-emotional variables uh, attached to their cognition. So again, I think these are complex questions, the candidacy questions, the treatment implementation questions. Um, I think are important to ask to be able to look at whether this decontextualized drill-based training has a role. And I think we're a long way from answering those. Well, it, with your APT program, could you describe the kind of person who would expect to benefit from that approach? Sure, let me just take a clinical case that we had. So this is a young 15-year-old male who was hit by a door at school, very brief loss of consciousness, um, had a lot of post-concussion kinds of issues, was very well adjusted at school and friends, missed a lot of school due to headaches, and complained about attention. He was a good math student prior. He was also in a magnet art school, a musician. Um, and that was his main uh, area of study. He wanted, he played the guitar and he also really liked math. So he was six months out, still feeling frustrated by not being able to hold on to information, not being able to sustain his attention for his guitar practice. So we talked about 
you know, he was very clear on what changes had, had occurred. We gave him the test of everyday attention. He showed some impairments that matched what he talked about. And so we did uh, some of these APT exercises that worked on working memory and sustained attention. To increase the dosage, we would load up a USB drive that comes with it to, for him to be able to do the exercises at home. We did a six week course. Um, he had a goal attainment scale, which was how long he could practice his guitar before he faded, and then also what his math quiz scores were. So we made a, you know, uh, we made levels of progress that he felt these two things would improve if his attention got better. And so we did six weeks. Um, he came in once a week. He did the exercises dutifully at home two times a week. And he had a strategy he paired with it, which was to use a word he came up with, which I'm actually not remembering now, but it basically was like telling himself to focus. But it was more in today's teenage vernacular. So I can't, <laughs> can't quite remember what it was. Um, so he would practice doing that. He kept some attention ratings during his tasks. And at the end of his therapy, he met his goal. He didn't feel he needed more therapy. Um, so I would say that's a successful case. But was it the attention exercises? Was it just, what if you did the attention exercises, took them out and just did the strategy training? What if you just had done kind of setting goals of guitar practice those are the types of research questions i think we need to continue to ask yeah and i think in one of your recent papers looking at attention training in uh, pediatric cases mm -hmm. that was one of the issues you brought up was people did well kids did well but why was it the right. Was it some of the motivational, self-reflective type of metacognitive engagement that was going on? Or was it the stimulation? Right. And, and is it going to be the same with every participant? I mean, as you know, in, anyone who works in brain injury knows the heterogeneity is really a hallmark characteristic. So sometimes do I think it maybe was just the strategies, you know, for other people like this young man, you have the sense that these exercises were very useful for him. So uh, I think that's also hard with the research um, that it's, you probably have people responding to different aspects of the, of the intervention. And anytime you have multiple components, it's hard to sort out, but I think we do know that sitting people in front of computers and doing drills is, is not advisable. There's little support to show if you just put them in front of drills that are not individualized or adaptive and changing in response to their own performance that are not tied to their own uh, functioning outside the clinic that you don't see generalizable changes. You might see changes on very like similar tasks, but they don't generalize to more complex tasks. Yeah. You mentioned goal attainment scaling and, and talked a little bit about goals. 
I've said before on the podcast, for me, that's the hardest part is goal setting. Yes. Once you have a yes. good goal, everything else pretty much falls into place often. Why is that? Well, I mean, I, me? I don't think our, <laughs> well, your, your thoughts have been very influential in, in certainly my own thinking about goal setting. Um, one of the, I think one of the uh, trends in our field in cognitive rehabilitation that has been wonderful and actually in neuro rehabilitation in general is this push for patient centered outcomes actually in all of medicine so as soon as we started saying oh we should be doing things that make that the patient that matter to the patients i mean it, it kind of seems ludicrous that it took us this long i'm very grateful to our psychology colleagues and researchers in those disciplines for for giving us models but the whole notion of working towards something that matters to you um, seems so obvious, but uh, it took us, it's taken us a long time to get there. So trying to figure out what is it that matters to the patient and then trying to set up uh, goals to help them get there. So, you know, the classic acute setting goal when you ask someone you know in a acute care setting is i want to get out of here okay so what do you think that would take um well they say i have to use my call button reliably or i have to be able to do this task so linking whatever the task is to something they want which is discharge or moving you know to a different level makes sense and our patients are us you know all of us rather work towards something that's motivating and important and I think the goal attainment scale process is ideal because um, it gives you levels. It's not just did they meet a goal or not meet a goal. And the kind of having a hierarchy of, of ways people can improve. And, you know, they've been shown to be valid and reliable if you follow certain characteristics. And so it's really revolutionized my own practice, certainly. Yeah. The thing that, I really like about goal attainment scaling is that it helps to move my client away from unrealistic expectations in a sense. Um, it, it provides room for overly optimistic hope, but creates a context in which you can have a conversation with the patient that also encourages them to think about what's most likely and and really i think it's a structure for um, guiding people through a reflective uh, process which Absolutely. it's kind of pretty straightforward when you say it but um for much of my career i didn't do anything like that you know i pretty much just prescribed um, or you know and then I moved from prescribing to you know functional treatment so then I asked people a little bit what they want but oftentimes as soon as I asked them their in initial response is you know just be who I was before <laughs> right right yeah 
I, I have a very um, similar journey. Um, and I think what's what uh, from a practitioner standpoint, um, I would say is that it's much more satisfying to join with your patient or your client and be working towards something together collaboratively, but rather than prescribing something. And also uh, people engage more. And we know when you engage more and you have, you're more motivated, it's you're going to uh, gonna get better change. Your, your therapy will be optimized. From a research standpoint, it's also been ideal because particularly in the area of cognitive rehabilitation where you might be giving everybody similar interventions that you're evaluating, but the way in which um, you're going to measure outcomes would be really different. So for example, we were talking about attention training. Well, for somebody that might mean, oh, I'm going to be able to read the whole newspaper. For somebody else, the tension gets in the way mostly trying to do a work task. Um, so it allows you to measure different change on different types of activity from the same types of intervention and uh, be able to look at you know, T-scores and calculate statistically um, to look and see you know, whether the change is significant and really measure the impact, you know, the impact and the efficacy of a particular approach. So I think there's benefits clinically and from a research standpoint. There's a group that was led by Christina, um, Christine Pacini, who's in France, and that I was part of this international group. And we defined the characteristics for goal attainment scaling that would need to occur to be able to have use them in rigorous randomized controlled trials. Um, and that was a very interesting process. And um, it's something kind of that we're really encouraging um, because that, for example, that paper you mentioned before, looking at attention training in the pediatric population, we saw lots of kids improved on certain neuropsych tests, I mean, on different neuropsych tests. So it depended kind of what was difficult for them to begin with. So you can't just pick one measure as an indicator of whether they're better. But on the goal attainment scaling, we saw consistent improvements um, when the attention was tied towards things that they did in their lives. And from a, a practical perspective as an SLP, I mean, right now I don't have that much time to assess, you know, yeah. to give the, the complete test of everyday attention you know, when I have probably other things to measure too. I mean, you know, maybe I can slip it in over time, but as you kind of nicely point out, goal attainment scaling gives you a, a good measure. Absolutely. Do you notice, because now I think you're involved in, in with a project that's coming up. Mm -hmm. Can I mention it? The one yes. The EGAS. Yes. So, with um, my colleague Don McLennan, at who's at the Minnesota VA, we became really interested in the power of goal attainment scaling, and then, um, but also recognize some of the limitations for using it, or the challenges I would say in cognitive rehabilitation, particularly when you 
try to set goals for patients and they've got difficulty with abstraction or awareness or setting goals that are linked to the cognitive areas that you're trying to address, that can be difficult for folks because it requires a certain degree of self-assessment and abstraction. Also, it's difficult to kind of be able to make this link between a cognitive process or set of processes and something functional. So we became interested in, and, and then I, and then the third thing that was difficult is that often these patients with self-awareness have difficulty with buy-in. They might not think they have a problem, for example. So all these kinds of challenges led us to come up with an idea for how to integrate motivational interviewing and those kinds of techniques into the creating the goal hierarchies with our patients, essentially coming up with a way to do collaborative interviews that would help us identify the meaningful goal, scale it according to the principles of goal attainment scaling, talk about what would be the best approach, the therapeutic approach. And so this project was funded by the ASHA Foundation and resulted in a prototype of this eGAS, electronic goal attainment scaling, and it's an app. So we have it on Apple Test Flight, so people can download it and try it out and give us feedback. When you see SLPs, are you training them to do goal attainment scaling, or they talk to you about doing it? What are some of the, the challenges that they commonly seem to have in terms of making the most out of it? I think the biggest challenge is that we sometimes think we're being patient-centered when we're not. It's really hard to not be overly directive. And so I think that's the biggest thing I see. So um, you helped us with the design of the some uh, videos. So it takes a lot of training and demonstration, I think, for people to say, oh, that's how you would ask a question. For example, a very simple technique that I didn't previously use that I learned a lot was kind of asking permission. You know, would it help if I told you about somebody else who has this issue and some things they tried? Rather than saying, here's a cognitive strategy that I think would be useful for you, uh, what do you think? Which is more directive, so you ask permission and they may say no, which in which case you know you're not going to get very far with that anyway. Um, but I think the idea of having of being truly collaborative and having some ways in which you can help people figure out what they want um, using some of these tried and true, long-standing interview um, types of in communication techniques is has been really helpful. And I think every practitioner, not just SLPs, OT, everybody who's working with people should be, should have a foundation in these skills. Yeah, it changed my practice considerably, mm -hmm. but it does take some getting used to, partly just because I think, as you mentioned, you know, my tendency, and I think for a lot of people, is to come in and rescue people, to, to, give them the answer and, and to really not be that patient 
waiting for them to think of something or even now for me still, you know, I, I have to accept a certain amount of uncomfortable silence and space um, to allow people to sit with the ambiguity of maybe not knowing exactly what they want. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yes. Yeah, but I think you you have to have some kind of framework that you're working from so that you know where you are on the map in the sense that you aren't just following your intuition. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, different than maybe some disciplines where uh, if you're working with someone, for example, um, on an addiction, you know, the, in the psychology world where this motivational interviewing uh, was born, there's kind of a, people know have kind of a, a shared understanding of, of their behavior and, and what it means. But when you're talking about a, a, a head injury and the resulting cognitive and psychological issues, they may not have a frame of reference. So asking an open-ended question about what do you want to do about this problem when they don't have maybe sufficient uh, content um, to be able to answer changes it a little bit so that sometimes what's needed is some upfront education. And so that's when we might ask permission so that they can make choices. So I think that makes it a little different. And it's when we're uh, when we don't give them a chance to make sure they understand it and then can make a choice when we're not patient, as you mentioned, that I think we deprive people of this opportunity to really engage with the therapy. And actually, probably it goes, in my experience, goes faster uh, when they're working towards something that they have a stake in and they've helped define. There's a perception, I think, that the goal attainment scaling takes a long time, like I don't have an hour for an interview. And I think once you're really well versed in the skills, it doesn't take as long. But like anything, in the beginning, it takes a lot of practice. And that's what we were trying to do with this EGAS tool is give sample scripts and hints and break down the interview process in order to facilitate a more targeted and quicker way to collaborate, I guess. Yeah, and for some of our patients, maybe for many of them, they're kind of learning how to be patients too. Right. Um, so we have to, I think, recognize that and allow that to happen rather than jump in, circumvent that reflective process that, you know, is built into a lot of the cognitive rehabilitation programs anyways. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, as long as we're on motivation, how important is motivation in cognitive rehabilitation? It's fundamental. And we were talking earlier about our journeys and some things that have changed. And I'm not sure in my early years that I fully appreciated it. And understanding the role of motivation now is foundational. I, I, I would hope that every training program for SLPs is incorporating 
these concepts across the different areas that we learn to treat. Um, I mean, and motivation is, is it's co complex. Um, so I think of, you know, part of motivation is engagement, part of its effort. So if I'm very motivated, then I put out more effort. My frontal lobes light up um, and I'm working harder. Um, if I'm working harder, then I'm going to see more change. It changes my practice, you know, my whatever it is that I'm learning. Motivation might improve my self-efficacy. I might, if I really want to do it, I might be willing to try something that that I wasn't sure I could do. There's all these prongs that motivation's a part of. Yeah, and you might you might be a little bit more resilient to your failures because of the degree of motivation that you have and focus on a on a goal. Absolutely. Everybody's worked in brain injury knows those patients who neurologically lack quote motivation. Those patients are really difficult to work with because they don't uh, recruit all their resources to be able to move forward. So I think when it's hard to put forth full effort and engage and work towards something because those brain networks that facilitate that are damaged, those patients are difficult have difficult time making improvements. Mm. Conversely, when you've got patients work for whom that's intact, or maybe it's part of their kind of pre-morbid personality profile, they make stronger gains. Um, you know, you kind of touched on something that I, I don't see a lot of discussion out there about, and that is neurologically based demotivated states, apathy, abulia. And from my reading, it could be quite prevalent in conditions like traumatic brain injury, some of the neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's disease, for example. And as you suggest, for those individuals, they're kind of motivational limits. Absolutely. That's, those are really good examples. Um, you know, anyone who's practiced not even very long will have those patients. I mean, I, I think the, the, the challenge or maybe the excitement for us as practitioners is what can we do to optimize motivational states, mm -hmm. whether you're working with um, in any of those disorder areas that you're talking about, what are there things that we can do? And, uh, you know, one we've talked at length about is this patient centered goal setting, you know, making sure that the things we're working on are meaningful. Um, that's certainly one. One is working within ranges where people are sufficiently successful and sufficiently challenged, figuring out what that range is for people. One is, you know, how you, what's your language working with folks to, you know, do we use terms like impairment or do we use terms like challenges? You know, just how you talk about uh, people's, uh, disease states or their their performance can make a difference in how uh, how, how positive they feel, how much um, you know that your therapeutic alliance with folks makes a big difference in how sometimes you know people feel that you're partnering with them, they're going to feel more motivated to work with you. So you know there's 
all of these areas represent different fields and different research questions. But maybe my main point is that I think there's a lot that we can learn about and do to optimize motivation, engagement, buy-in, resilience that will help our patients improve. Yeah, and I think from my experience, understanding some of the recurring themes and the principles involved with motivation, you can apply them, if you know the principles, you can apply them to different ranges of severity and ability. You know, a, 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 just a principle of choice. You know, exactly. You know, some people can make more choice. Some people need guidance. Some people need a menu, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's still choice. Yes, well said. I have a, a few questions from Facebook. I told people on Facebook that I was going to be interviewing you and they were very excited and, and I, I got some questions. So I'm going to look at some that I don't think that we've um, touched on yet. Uh, w one is how to build insight uh, in patients who, where that's an issue. Yes. Um, you know, one of the most intriguing areas we work on in brain injury is our challenges in self-awareness and insight. And we've touched a little bit on that already. I have been very influenced by the work of our Australian colleagues, many of whom are psychologists, and their work in the role of feedback. And I think that, the, let me back up and say that probably the first question to ask is, what's the cause of lack of insight? You know, is it, kind of an organically based, you know, anisognosia kind of profile. I, you know, I don't have awareness about myself. Is it more psychologically mediated? I, I don't show any insight because I really have denial because I need to be spared from the frustration or the pain of ad admitting or understanding that I've got these limitations now that may be chronic. So I think part of our first task is to kind of parse out where it's coming from, because that may dictate what we do. But for our clients who have difficulty kind of understanding their own performance, anticipating errors, I think across a few different arenas, it's been shown that verbal and video feedback is very powerful. So I, I like the study, I think Schmidt um, and Fleming, in this Australian group where they were doing a meal preparation task and showed that the condition where they gave patients both video and verbal feedback resulted in the, lead, in, a, the, uh, in the most significant decrease in errors during this meal preparation task and was associated with an improvement in intellectual awareness or kind of under, you know, what we might call as insight. So I, I think, um, and some of the work that's been done in social communication training, where you have people look at videos of their uh, conversational exchanges and identify what they want to change 
has, has had similar results. And maybe for some of the milder clients, motivational interviewing, the, I think yes. you've, you've uh, cited the paper by Medley. Yes. A lot of people cite that paper. Yes. It's kind of a position statement in a sense on how motivational interviewing could be used in cognitive rehabilitation. I think that was those authors, that was one of the things that they were focused on was that these set of counseling techniques give therapists a way to guide some patients to kind of have the insight on themselves Absolutely. Rather, rather than us get into um, trying to convince people. Um, let me see what other questions I have here. I've got a trivia question, but I'll save that till the end. Oh, um, <laughs> I was never very good at trivia. Let's see. Well, it's I might have to it's stop trivia about your work. So uh, let's see oh. here. Um, I think we've uh, recovered that. Well, one person was saying something. I'm going to paraphrase their question. It's about uh, uh, people with TBI going back to work where many of their kind of primary, for lack of a better term, primary cognitive skills, they've learned to manage them, their attention issues, memory issues, but the social skills are difficult to, to manage. Any, I know that's a big topic. Well, it's a, it's a it's a great question, a really important topic because the as the person's pointing out that you can be able to perform on the job, but if you're irritating um, or you're not picking up social cues, you may not be able to maintain that employment. So I think the most important thing that you know is is trying to understand where what the social communication limitation is. So this would be an example where contextualized training is absolutely critical. So if they're talking too much, let's say, and uh, it's irritating to people, rather than, it's, you know, that can be hard to work on in a clinical setting and get that to transfer because there's all kinds of triggers that, that may happen. Maybe they talk too much and it's triggered by the work context because they want to feel like they're successful and they know something about the topic. So as much as possible uh, to be able to understand the challenging behaviors and set the, you know, again, videotaping is extremely useful, um, having people rate themselves, working on the insight. Often you can have two people working together, rating the same video sample, setting goals, having them look um, and enlist others in kind of the feedback process. So I guess the big idea would be really understanding the and defining what the social communication behavior that's desired is and, and what the contexts are that might be preventing that from happening. And then providing a practice, once there's insight established and agreement, pr providing a practice uh, context that allows generalization and self-reflection. Certainly way back in the beginning, motivational interviewing might be what you're using. Like, you know, sounds like you, this job's important to use, 
you know, am I right about that? You know, what's going well, what's not going well, what will other people say is going well, not, you know, kind of some of using some of the open-ended questions, seeing if you can help them understand some of the liabilities of whatever their social communication issues are, and then moving towards being able to kind of get video samples and, and moving through that uh, progression I mentioned with understanding the context, providing practice and self-reflection. Do you think that as far as motivational interviewing goes, that getting the formal training is necessary? I'm kind of on the fence about it. Uh, I, I have gotten training and the people who do motivational training are very big on the fact that you need to get lots of training. Um, on the other hand, you know, part of me says, well, you know, there are these principles and it, and uh, motivational interviewing doesn't have a lock on these principles anyways. Um, what do you think? Well, as, as our friend Don McLennan says, Socrates was using these principles before. <laughs> so whether you go to a formal workshop by uh, people who um, have the certification for MI, or whether you're mentored by somebody who's particularly skilled in it, I think like anything and the, the same uh, principles hold true when we're getting our patients to practicing. It's practicing, getting feedback, setting goals, watching yourself on videotape. I mean, some of the most powerful kind of self-reflections as a clinician were watching myself when I thought I was being patient-centered and using uh, motivational interviewing kinds of techniques and how far I was from that and, and how deliberate I still have to be. I'm kind of a problem solver and I take too many turns. It's hard for me to leave enough silence. And so I think it's it's not much different than our clients. You have to have motivation to be able to, you know, seek the information, practice, watch yourself, get feedback. Does that have to occur at a workshop? I don't think so, necessarily. Does it easier to do it that way? Probably. Uh, re recording yourself and watching yourself, I, I try to do that as often as I can, as cringeworthy as it is. Uh, yes. You know, and, and like you said, it is kind of amazing that even though some of these things we've mentioned sound so simple, we have such, I think most of us have such strong kind of instincts or impulses that I have to be quite vigilant or else, you know, I, I fall back into certain... Yes. Behaviors. Well, let me let's finish with our trivia question. So the uh -oh. <laughs> the question is here, um, and maybe you'll understand the question. Maybe you won't. It's regarding the first APT program, and um, the person asks, "What is he reading from in the original APT program?" Sports page from the Seattle Times? Question mark. I've spent hours in therapy sessions trying to make <laughs> sense of it. <laughs> Do you well, remember? Um, the context for that, I, in all honesty, 
Uh, we never set out to make a program that was commercially available. Um, it was a research project and we had these attention exercises which were uh, audio recorded in my apartment bathroom in the bathtub exactly because it had better acoustics um, <laughs> and my husband had um was between medical school and residencies so we paid him minimum wage to make those exercises and then we ran the experiment and showed that people got better at least on these neuropsych tests and then we got all these requests for the program so that's kind of then so we sort of slapped a few together and then eventually gave it to a publisher so that's the real genesis as for the sports page uh, it was a sports page and i and we lived in seattle at the time so that would be a really good guess but i can't for sure say which newspaper or <laughs> which well, era it was but i'm impressed that somebody that's very impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, someone could go a step further and they could transcribe it and perhaps do a search. You never know these days. There you go. Um, well, uh, McKay Solberg, thanks a lot for spending an hour or so talking with me. Um, what do you? What's going on Thank right you. now for you, and and what's in the future? Well, we're waiting to hear on this NIH grant. Uh, we got really high reviews. So um, we're hoping to be able to take this electronic goal attainment scaling project and move it forward and look more at feasibility, widen it for use in not just cognitive rehabilitation, but for um, other areas, dysarthria, motor speech, aphasia. Um, and look at feasibility of implementation in the rehab setting. So that's something we're excited about. I'm working a lot with uh, persistent concussion effects, and we've just submitted a grant for kind of a virtual concussion clinic. I'm interested in those five to 20% of individuals who have significant issues that chronic cognitive and somatic issues. So that's some work that we've been doing and uh, kind of setting up protocols to treat, which is a very interesting kind of full circle since we started talking about history and getting into the field in the beginning. Um, maybe I can end with that. You know, now we talk about persistent post-concussion effects, but uh, decades ago, we talked about the treatment of mild traumatic brain injury, MTBI, and it's the same individuals that just weren't really recognized or it wasn't legitimized. And now with the returning injured combat vets and with football and sports injuries, um, there's a resurgence and in interest and more of a validity behind this population. So it's been interesting to look at it in new and different ways. So those are two biggies I'm I'm working on right now. That's enough. With the eGas app, you get funded in the general sense of uh, when it might be available. Well, it's available. Anybody that would want to try it, you can just download it from Apple Test Flight. They could email me. I'm 
at mckay at uoregon.edu if somebody wanted to take a look at the app. They will see you doing some teaching on it. Um, there's a prescriptive manual, it's kind of a smart manual, and there's examples, and it's free, um, and we love getting feedback because everybody gives us feedback then we are kind of doing this iterative development then um, and I, I should acknowledge the uh, programmer the software engineer Jason Prideau who's done a really good job and my doctoral student Priya Kucheria and Don McLennan and I have kind of been the team working on it so we're hoping to make goal attainment scaling very accessible for SLPs and and valid and reliable as a way to measure meaningful outcomes. Yeah, it's a great app. I definitely encourage people to to check it out. I think it's a good way to get started with goal attainment scaling if you're not familiar with it. Um, all right, well, thanks again. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. Please visit the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences at ancds.org. You can find our other podcasts there. You can also subscribe to our podcasts at iTunes and find them on SoundCloud.